few more classes left until we're finished up with our intro to Covenant Theology, so I hope this has been helpful for everyone. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll begin. Father, we do thank you for your word of truth. God, we thank you for your revealed plan throughout history. God, that you have set in motion this plan to glorify yourself, to glorify your name, Lord, to show the world who you are, Lord God, that everything that you created would be um, would be working to glorify, honor, <coughs> praise, and worship you, Lord God. And I pray that we would be active in this, Father, that we would um, make fruitful every element of our lives, Lord, to your glory. God, that we would advance the kingdom of Christ, that we would proclaim his name and salvation through him alone. And Lord, that we would walk in a manner worthy of this calling. God, we thank you for the sure um, and steadfast hope that we have in your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you cannot break your word, that your promises are certain. And I just pray that you would be um, giving us confidence to walk uh, consistently and courageously. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right. So like I said, we're coming down towards the end. And tonight, we're going to talk about the final judgment of the Old Covenant. So we have, <clears throat> you know, we've, we've traced um, the... You know, biblical history, the history of redemption from the garden. We've gotten up to the new covenant and the you know large large rejection of the Jews or by the Jews of the new covenant in the New Testament era. Um, so we've traced history all through that, and what we're seeing is that God does um, create in. Uh, according to covenants, that that's how God establishes order in creation is by covenant. He made a covenant with Adam to govern that kingdom. He made a covenant with Abraham to form and then to govern the kingdom of Israel. And then his covenant with and through Christ uh, forms and governs the new covenant kingdom. <clears throat> and so all of reality, truly all of reality, God has woven covenant into it. And so ultimately, something that we need to understand is that it is ultimately impossible to live outside of God's covenant order because God will not allow it. It goes against the fabric of reality. This gets into God's authority as the creator, that because he made everything, he has the right to make it a certain way. The world works according to covenants. And for those who seek to live outside of that or to live against that, ultimately it's going to be truly, literally impossible because God, the creator, won't allow it. And so that's what we um, are going to be talking about, especially when we talk about covenant judgment, that God uses judgment to make it impossible for people to go on breaking the covenant or living outside of it. <clears throat> so tonight we're going to actually try to handle... A pretty long text, so bear with me. We're going to read through um, the end of Matthew 23 and about half of chapter 24, and um, just to use this to frame our discussion <coughs> and to lead us to that final judgment of the old covenant. And again, if you see, all of history is God 
working out his plan to establish the kingdom of Christ and the new covenant. And so if we see history through that lens and we see Israel and the reality of Israel through that lens, then we can see what purpose Israel served, why God constituted this holy nation, and also why um, judgment did indeed come upon them. So Matthew 23, beginning in verse 34 and also, just so you guys know, this, you know, Matthew 24 is one of the more challenging texts of the New Testament. Um, so we're going to try to handle some of that tonight. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 34. <clears throat> Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as, the wor such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the, corpse is, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heavens with power and great glory. And he will send out his angel with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And we'll leave it there. Uh, so, obviously, like I said, that's one of the more difficult texts of the New Testament, and there's a lot there. And we're not going to go, you know, verse by verse through that tonight. That's not the point of what we're doing. But I want to frame all of that in terms of this idea of covenant judgment, because that's what we're talking about. So we're going to kind of look back, backtrack a little bit, and then, you know, see how all of this is extremely crucial in understanding God's covenant arrangement with Israel and the transition to the new covenant. So like I mentioned, God ultimately makes it impossible for anyone to remain and to live outside of his covenant order. We see this as far back as the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, after they broke the covenant, God kicked them out and placed the angel guarding the entrance to the garden with the sword. They were exiled from that land and they could not enjoy the blessings and the fruit of the covenant that God had made with them. And so literally God, through judgment, by casting them out of the garden and guarding the entrance, through judgment, God made it impossible for Adam and Eve to continue in the blessedness of the covenant. Um, the same thing is true when Israel was exiled from Jerusalem, when the temple was destroyed the first time by Babylon, that God, for a period, temporarily suspended the old covenant people from that um, from that covenant order. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have the presence of God among them. They weren't able to do the ceremonies. It was not possible for them to live under the terms of the covenant or to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. They were kicked out of the land. And so through judgment, God made it impossible for a period for them to do that. The same is true um, at the culmination of the old covenant. God came in judgment on <coughs> old covenant Israel after they rejected the Christ. Remember last time we talked about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant. Everything about it is, you know, it culminates in him. And so the Jews' rejection of Jesus was their rejection of 
essentially the entire old covenant, the blessing of the covenant. And so God ultimately judged his old covenant people for rejecting the Messiah. And he judged them in such a way that it made it impossible for them to maintain any pretense whatsoever that they were still in the terms of the covenant. He made it impossible for them to live under that order. Does that make some sense? Feel free to stop me. I know some of this stuff might be a little bit difficult. So if you have any questions, stop me. So this stretches back to the Old Testament. You guys turn to a Joel, the prophet Joel chapter 2. <clears throat> so throughout the Old Testament, there was um, this... There's a theme that runs through, especially in the prophets, where there's this anticipation of um, what they refer to as the day of the Lord. There's a warning constantly being issued by the prophets of this coming day of the Lord. And um, if we read here in Joel chapter 2, we'll get a you know a sense of what the day of the Lord was, ex- excuse me, was expected to be. Joel 2, verses 1 and 2, we read, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will again after them, through the years of all generations. And then if you go down to verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And so you see, just in that description in Joel, and you'll find more warnings about the day of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. But, you know, from the way that Joel describes it, we can see that it's not uh, something to be excited about. That the day of the Lord was, um, it, it was supposed to be this day of visitation, of terror, of judgment, of destruction, of, you know, kind of decisive, devastating judgment against the people. And the idea of the day of the Lord or the day of his visitation is that God was going to uh, come down and visit the people. He was going to, you know, examine and, you know, pass judgment on them for how they were living in terms of the covenant. And the question was, what was God going to find on his day of visitation? When the king arrived, what was he going to find? Was he going to find people who were faithful? Or was he going to find people who had disobeyed him, broken the covenant, and served idols? And so this was uh, an extremely terrifying prospect for the people of Israel. Because, the you know, Israel, you have to understand... They were schooled in this um, understanding of God that, you know, everything about their lives, the temple, the washings, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, all of it, everything about their lives was driving home the fact that God is holy and you are not. And you cannot dwell in the presence of the holy God. That's like the whole culture 
made them understand that. And so for this people who couldn't even dwell in the proximate presence of God with the temple, who couldn't even come near into the most holy place, what, how was it going to go when the holy God came and visited them in their sin and in their rebellion? And that's what the prophets were warning about. That's why you hear from Joel at the end of what we read, the day of the Lord is very great and awesome. Who can endure it? Who's going to be able to stand? He's warning the people that God is coming, this day is approaching, and you need to repent because if God shows up and he sees this idolatry, he sees this wickedness, what judgment is he going to pass? And it's going to be destructive and terrifying. And again, you see this phenomena all the way back in the garden. When Adam and Eve heard the sound of God in the garden after they had sinned, they hid from him because they were ashamed and didn't want, they were terrified for God to see them in their guilty state. And that's the idea of the day of the Lord and his visitation is he is going to come. He's going to see the people in their guilt and in their shame, and he's going to pass judgment. So that's the predominant understanding of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, the way that the prophets warned of it. But this was also mixed with the prophetic message of God coming to bless and to restore his people through the Messiah. We talked about this a few weeks ago, the messianic expectation where God talks about sending his servant and God's going to you know, bring um, renewal and revival and life and flourishing and he was going to dwell with his people. And so you have this tension that we see throughout the Old Covenant of these two expectations, both that the guilt and the condemnation of the Old Covenant was going to be dealt with, but also that the promises of the Old Covenant um, and the reconciliation that God promised were going to come to pass. So you have both of these expectations going on in Israel. The prophets are warning them of this day of the Lord that's going to be judgment, but also proclaiming that God is going to come in um, you know, peace to restore them. Turn over to Isaiah 61. We read this a few weeks ago. We talked about the messianic expectation that formed. But, you know, you'll, if we just read it, you'll see kind of both of these expectations. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And so you see both realities in that, that you have this proclamation that the, the servant, the Messiah, he's coming to bring about the year of the Lord's favor. He's going to give liberty. He's going to give blessing, consummation, but then also the day of God's vengeance and wrath he's also bringing. So you get both expectations happening. That God's visitation was both a hope and a terror, the terror of judgment and the hope of restoration. But primarily in the Old Testament, the understanding of the day of the Lord is judgment, condemnation, fear, terror of what God is going to find when he comes and visits his people. Do you guys have any questions on any of that so far? Now, 
Israel, in their actual history, in the Old Testament history, they did experience types and fulfillments of both of these things. So after the prophetic warnings, after, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and Hosea and Micah and all these prophets came to warn the people of Israel, they were proclaiming this day of judgment, proclaiming this day of the Lord that was coming. They were booted out of the land, conquered by the Babylonians, temple was destroyed, and they were taken captive into a foreign land. So there was an you know, immediate, near-term fulfillment of this judgment. That God was going to, you know, come and punish the people's sins by taking them out of the land, disinheriting that generation from their covenant promises. Um, <clears throat> and so there was that, you know, immediate fulfillment, but it wasn't um, this, it wasn't a final or definitive judgment of God because, the old covenant order, even though it was suspended for a period while the people were out of the land, the old covenant order still continued after that judgment. It was reconstituted. The people returned to the land. They rebuilt the temple. They reinstituted the sacrifices. And so it wasn't a definitive final judgment when the people were exiled. It didn't live up to everything that the day of the Lord sort of promised to be. Um, and then on the flip side, the return to the land fulfills a lot of the promises of restoration that we find in the prophets. We also talked about this several weeks ago. Um, a lot of the messianic promises included things about returning to the land and rebuilding the temple and, you know, dwelling with God once again. There's a lot of those physical promises. And we talked about that those find real fulfillment when the people return from exile, go back to the land and rebuild the temple. That is legitimate. But once again, it doesn't, um, it doesn't completely live up to the expectations of what this restoration was going to be like. Um, it was obviously incomplete. Israel, they returned to the land, they rebuilt the temple. It wasn't as glorious as the first temple. They never reinstituted the throne of David. They never reset the kings on the throne. Um, they didn't have the kind of dominion they had. They never came close to the glory that they had under David and Solomon. Excuse me. And so the, even though there was a real fulfillment of these promises of restoration, it didn't live up to um, the, you know, kind of the fullness of what was promised. It's, it was incomplete. It was still a type. And so the people largely during that period were still in anticipation, like we talked about, waiting for the Messiah who was finally going to bring about all those blessings that had been promised, who was going to bring everything to fruition. <clears throat> so both of these, the exile and the return to the land, are legit. They are real fulfillments of warnings and of promises, and they are covenantally significant, but they don't arise to the kind of cataclysmic level of what the day of the Lord was supposed to be, and they also don't arise to the kind of glorious level of the year of the Lord's favor and the restoration. So it was, um, you, you have both of those having a type of fulfillment, but still awaiting, like everything else in the Old Covenant, still awaiting a fuller, greater actualization. And it was the Messiah who was going to bring all of the blessings to the re uh, to reality 
and it was also the Messiah who was going to execute all the judgment that was warned of. So you have the, in the Messiah both the blessings and the judgment that's going to come. <coughs> this was the day of the Lord. So do you guys have any anything on that? Good. All right. You're good. Okay. <clears throat> so the old covenant, you know, as we've discussed, it carries real curses for unfaithfulness. And you know, I'm I'm trying to lay a lot of like groundwork here so we can kind of see the way that all this is fulfilled. So the old covenant does promise curses for unfaithfulness. Um, judgment is going to follow covenant breaking. We have to understand this is the way that God created reality, and particularly under the old covenant. If you were disobedient, curses would follow. You can't disobey God indefinitely and have no consequences. And so this um, this is the explanation of kind of the tumultuous times that we see throughout the Old Testament history when they're under wicked, sinful kings and you have foreign oppression and you have all this sorts of, you know, trouble that comes upon the kingdom of Israel. Um, it also, again, leads to the exile. But also remember, like I said at the beginning, the entire point of the Old Covenant was to bring the Christ into the world and it was to establish through him the new covenant and the new kingdom. And so the ultimate act, so disobedience under the old covenant brings curse. You can't escape it. The ultimate act of old covenant faithfulness would be obedience to Jesus as the Messiah and the King to embrace Jesus as the fulfillment of Everything about the Old Covenant. This is what we talked about last time. Jesus came. He fulfilled everything. He brought everything to its greatest realization. And so if you were a faithful Jew who had lived under the Old Covenant, then the most obedient thing you could possibly do under that covenant order was to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, to receive him, and to rejoice that all the promises had been fulfilled. That was faithfulness. <clears throat> but of course... This is largely not what happened. In um, the beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 11, we're told that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so that's the, um, that's the judgment on the Jews of Jesus' generation. That he, he came to his people. He arrived as promised on time, exactly the way that he was promised to arrive and yet his people did not receive him. And remember, these are the people who have been taught, who everything about their upbringing, everything about their religious life, everything about their you know communal life was teaching them to expect this Messiah. It was teaching them who he would be, what he would do, what he was going to be like. They were prepared for generation after generation after generation to embrace the king when he came, and yet... The people rejected him. They did not receive him as their king, but they rejected him. And you see this 
throughout Jesus' ministry, the very people who had been entrusted with the covenant blessings, the people who were entrusted with the promises, the teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the Levites, the people who were in control of the you know kind of religious establishment of old covenant Judaism, they absolutely um, rejected the covenant fulfillment, the ultimate blessing under the old covenant. The people who were schooled in the scriptures, who knew the law, who knew the promises, they vehemently rejected the fulfillment. And they not only rejected him, but they continuously sought to undermine his ministry, to discredit him, to slander him, to accuse him of wrongdoing, ultimately to silence him, to arrest him, and to murder him. This was their, you know, that was how deeply they not only rejected the Messiah, but hated him. They weren't just tepid towards him. They weren't just you know, a little bit, you know, reserved with him, but they despised him and they actively sought to suppress and to destroy him. And so Jesus, by the people who had, who were supposed to embrace him as their covenant Lord, the fulfillment of the promises, they absolutely, profoundly rejected him. And this was not only foolishness on the part of the Jews, but it was also covenant unfaithfulness of the highest order. The, I can't stress it enough. The height of obedience to the old covenant is to embrace Jesus, which means that the height of disobedience is his rejection. This was in this was the absolute summit of the kind of disobedience that Israel had long been guilty of and had been warned about. So throughout Israel's history, they were guilty of uh, arrogantly idolizing themselves and their system, thinking highly of themselves, being prideful in the temple and in their institutions and in their position as God's chosen people who were called out. And so they were arrogant, they were prideful, and not only that, they also would then go and worship other gods or would mix the worship of other gods in with the worship of the true God. And they didn't have any remorse for this because they saw themselves as God's special people who could do no wrong. They took pride in that. And so they, you know, they didn't give thanks to God. They didn't praise God for his mercy. Instead, they were trusting in themselves, their own identity, their own institutions and their own works. All the way back in Deuteronomy, if you guys want to turn back there to Deuteronomy 8, before the people even enter into the promised land, God warns them of this very kind of sin. In Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18, we read, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. What's God saying there? He's saying, be careful. You're going to enter the land and I'm going to bless you in this land because I've promised to do so by covenant. But be careful when you go into the land and when you're prosperous and when you're blessed, don't say to yourself, I've done this myself. I've accomplished all this. It's because of what I've done. It's because I'm special. He says, remember the Lord your God. He made a covenant with you. He freely chose you and delivered you from slavery. You will remember him and worship him. Fast forward to Isaiah chapter 1. 
This was the exact same kind of sin, this pride and this arrogance, this, you know, idolizing of the institutions and the ceremonies, same kind of sin uh, that he warned about in Deuteronomy before they entered the land. We see it in Isaiah, uh, beginning in verse 11. We read, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. What's the rebuke there? God is telling his people, you come and you make your sacrifices and you keep the Sabbath and you worship me and you pray to me and you lift your hands to me and you have all these ceremonies and these assemblies, but you you neglect the law. You have blood on your hands. It's insincere. You say, you, you praise me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You're not truly worshiping me. You're not truly thankful. You're not truly humble. You're going through the motions. They presumed on and idolized their institutions, their sacrifices, their ceremonies. And they kept all those things and they thought that by doing that, they were, you know, they were okay with God. When in reality, God was calling them to true faithfulness and humility and thankfulness and trust and things like that. And then if you go up to Matthew 23, where we were reading earlier, when Jesus Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders of his day, this religious establishment of Israel, and he says in verse 23 of chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tied mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So you see, it's the same exact kind of sin that the that Israel had continuously been guilty of throughout the history of the covenant. You know, he says of the Pharisees, yeah, you do all the little things. You go and you tithe your, you know, uh, your proper amounts and you go through the motions, but you neglect the real matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're not actually living in accord with God's standards. You're going through the motions, but your heart is not there. You're in, you're actually in rebellion against God. And so the it was the Pharisees of Jesus' generation that really epitomized this sin that was common throughout Israel's history. They, above everyone, loved everything about the covenant. They loved all the externalities about the covenant. They loved the trappings. They loved the requirements. They loved the ceremonies. They loved the outward uh, works of it, but they hated the covenant itself. They loved the appearance of it, and they loved everything that went along with it, but they hated the actual covenant. And the reason why we can know this and say this is because they hated the one who fulfilled the covenant. They hated Jesus. He was the, the whole point of the covenant was Jesus, and they hated him. 
And so you can see that, yeah, they loved all the externalities of it, but in reality, they hated the covenant. They hated what it was. <clears throat> they hated the Lord of the covenant. And this hatred was so intense that they called down, when they were crying for Jesus' crucifixion, they called down covenant curses on themselves. In Matthew 27, verse 25, all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. That's how much they hated Jesus, is that they were willing to call on themselves the curse of blood guiltiness concerning the innocent blood of Christ. They were satisfied to call that down on themselves in order to dispatch of him, to kill him. And so that shows you how much they really despised and disregarded the covenant. And this is why Jesus, in the passage that we read in Matthew 23, when he says that all the blood of the righteous that's been unjustly spilled, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, is going to be visited on this generation. This is what Jesus means, that the covenant breaking of every generation climaxed in these Jewish leaders who put Jesus to death. And so all of the covenant wrath that had been stored up throughout the generation, and really all of the wickedness of the seed of the serpent going back to Abel was going to be visited on the generation of Jesus' day. He says that all that blood is going to be attributed to this generation because they epitomized the disobedience by killing Jesus. Does that make sense? You guys able to follow this? Okay. Feel free for real to stop me if you guys have questions. <clears throat> so that was the epitome of old covenant disobedience. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, warned of the judgment that was to come. So if you remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he quotes Isaiah 61, the year of the Lord's favor, that I've come to proclaim liberty, liberty to the captive, to set free those who have been taken captive, to open the eyes of the blind, and all that. Jesus says that he has come to fulfill this, but along with it, remember what we read from Isaiah 61, the day of God's vengeance. Jesus came to fulfill both. He came first to fulfill the um, the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. But then he was going to come in vengeance and in judgment on the covenant breakers. So we see this even in some of the parables of Jesus. <clears throat> Turn back to Matthew 18. We're going to examine pretty quickly a few of the parables because you see that Jesus, what he's doing in large part is warning <coughs> the covenant people of the judgment that's going to come if they don't repent and receive him. So Matthew 18, beginning in verse 23, this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. <clears throat> Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So obviously this has wide application to us in terms of, you know, as the Lord has forgiven us, we also must forgive each other. But in this covenantal sense, because Jesus is talking about the kingdom, you have this um, parable in which you have this picture of, you know, Israel, the, you know, the covenant people of Israel have been given abundant mercy by God. They have been given light and revelation. God had been patient with them. God had entrusted them with the gospel, with a light to the nations. And yet, in spite of all that, they were unthankful to God. They were in, you know, ungrateful. Um, they didn't serve him from the heart. And also, what you know, started to materialize when it became clear that the, the, the blessing of the covenant was not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles also. The Jews hated that um, God's mercy could be extended to any other. They hated that it wasn't uniquely for them, but it was for the Gentiles also. And so you see in this parable with the unforgiving servant that ingratitude towards the grace that his master had with him and also the um, the hatred or the anger that mercy could be extended to any other. And so you have in there a warning to the covenant people <clears throat> that, you know, you have been dealt with with grace and patience. And if you don't repent and if you don't, you know, give thanks to God and honor him, then you are going to be judged. <clears throat> Another one, Matthew 20 verses 1 through 16. I know I'm kind of going through these quickly, but I want to show you guys that Jesus did warn throughout his ministry in these parables of this judgment that was going to come. Matthew 20, 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard and going out, at about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again at the sixth hour, and the ninth hour he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. When those hired at the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, The last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. 
Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Once again, we see Jesus explaining and showing kind of this mentality that the Jews had that they have been entrusted with the blessing of God for so long. And when it began to come to light that the blessings of the covenant would be extended to the Gentiles on the exact same terms that it was to the Jews, repentance and faith in the Messiah, the Gentiles who had spent centuries reveling in wickedness and unrighteousness, and now all of a sudden here they are and they can enter the kingdom of God just by repentance and faith the same way the Jews can, that made them indignant and made them envious like those workers who were hired first and were bitter that the ones hired last received the same wages. Does that make sense? And so you're seeing again this theme and this warning of, you know, this is the kingdom, this is how it is, and if you don't receive this, the judgment is going to come. The most clear parable of this, this will be the last one we look at, Matthew 21, verses 33 through 44. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scripture, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So you have there pretty clearly a parable that describes the Jews who were the recipients of all these blessings. God gave them the covenant, entrusted to them the promises and the law and the light of truth in the world, just like the master or the, you know, the, the owner who entrusted to these, you know, uh, vineyard keepers, the, uh, you know, the fruits of the vineyard. And when God comes, he sends his prophets, he sends his people to, you know, warn the, to tell the people you need to produce fruit, you can't be worshiping idols, you need to obey. They stone them, they kill them, they treat them shamefully, culminating in the murder of God's own son. And what does Jesus say? I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, and I'm going to give it to those who produce its fruit. A sharp warning that the Jews, if they did not repent, were going to lose their inheritance, and the inheritance was going to be given to Others. So you have Jesus throughout his life warning of this judgment, and yet the Jews, even when they were given this opportunity to receive Jesus, um, and, and even after they rejected him, 
they still refused to repent. And so even after they had killed Christ and he had risen again, even after they had murdered the Messiah, they still were given the opportunity to repent. The apostles still came and preached the gospel beginning in Jerusalem. Post-crucifixion, post this you know, great sin that they had committed, um, and, and this curse that they had called on themselves, they still had the opportunity to repent. They were still the targets of apostolic preaching. And you did see, you know, many Jews did, in fact, repent. They realized their horrific covenant guilt. And just like uh, at Pentecost, after Peter's sermon, many of them were cut to the heart and said, what can we do? What can we do to be saved after they realized that they had killed their Messiah so, of course, many Jews did repent. They did receive the blessing and the inheritance. Um, however, they, um, in large part, by and large, the Jews refused to repent. They refused to receive Jesus as the Messiah. Even though Paul, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Romans 11 and how the Jews were you know, broken off, the Gentiles were grafted in onto this tree giving life. And Paul still was hoping that, you know, you would have the Jews come to Christ. And even though today the Jews still have every opportunity to repent, to receive forgiveness through the Messiah, to receive their rightful inheritance by faith in Christ, ultimately they remain by and large unrepentant. The book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome Talking to the Jews, um, Acts 28, and um, <clears throat> beginning in verse 25, disagreeing among themselves, the Jews departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So Paul, his you know, the record of his public ministry closes with him saying to the Jews, the kingdom is going to the Gentiles. You have lost your claim on the kingdom because you have failed to repent and receive your Messiah. And so this blessing is going to go to the Gentiles. The kingdom is going to go to them. They will receive it and they will produce its fruits just as Jesus said. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul also alludes to this coming judgment on the Jews. 1 Thessalonians 2, speaking of the Jews, verse 15 he says, they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So he says of the Jews that they, have, they are filling up the measure of their sins and wrath is coming upon them. Judgment is coming upon them. And... It's really interesting. So even though the apostles preached, the people remained hardened of heart, stiff-necked, refusing to repent. And you see, very significantly, I think, Jesus' public ministry began around the year 30 AD. 
the judgment on the old covenant people happened in 70 AD. So you have this 40 year period of the gospel of the kingdom being preached to the people. The judgment is being warned of. And then the judgment comes 40 year period. And we know that's a significant number biblically with Noah. It rained 40 days and 40 nights. The people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before they were judged. Jesus was tempted 40 days in the wilderness. The old covenant people were given 40 years of proclamation and warning and you know the preaching of the gospel and they rejected it and then judgment came on them in the year 70 AD with the destruction of the temple and the siege of Jerusalem. This was the final definitive old covenant judgment. And this is what Jesus was predicting um, in that text that we read to open things up. So we're going to finally get back to that. If you guys want to turn back to Matthew 23 and 24. It was this, again, and I think it's important to see this in the context of final, definitive, old covenant judgment coming on the people of Israel. And so, like I said, Matthew 24 is an extremely difficult passage. There's a lot of solid theologians who have different interpretations of it. Um, But most of us, I think, you know, in you know, my experience, most of us in the evangelical world just kind of assume that this is talking about the end times, the last days, the final judgment, the second coming, and all the rest. We kind of have that as the assumption. Um, I don't believe that that works to understand this passage. I don't believe that completely works. Jesus, in verse 34, says plainly, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Jesus is talking to the people of his day about something that's going to take place in their lifetime. And even going back to the beginning of this, in verse 2 of chapter 24, Jesus is specifically addressing the disciples' questions about the temple and its destruction. Jesus said um, in verse 2, There will not be left one stone upon another of this temple. And then the apostles asked him, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So the apostles are specifically asking Jesus about what he said about the temple being destroyed. Jesus says these things are going to happen and be experienced by this generation. Um, And this is, you know, the technical and theological term for this interpretation is partial preterism, meaning that um, at least in part, a lot of the New Testament prophecies about, you know, judgment and destruction were fulfilled when Jerusalem was ransacked and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Um, R.C. Sproul teaches this. A lot of other solid reform people, not everyone, but a, a lot of solid reform teachers hold to this position. Um, And basically what Jesus is doing in this section is warning his disciples of the tribulation and persecution that they were going to face as God poured out his covenant judgment on 
the old covenant people. And you see this like throughout history that periods of God's judgment see an increase in persecution and in trial for God's people. Even if God's judging others, not judging like his people specifically, if he's not judging Christians, you see throughout history periods of judgment and upheaval typically also see heightened persecution of God's people. And so Jesus is warning his followers of this persecution and tribulation that was going to come their way when he poured out this judgment on the old covenant people. Fundamentally, what's going on in this passage it is a warning of judgment on Jerusalem for their unfaithfulness and disobedience to the old covenant. And you see in here the very characteristic, dramatic language of the prophets, the poetic language that the prophets would use. So, for instance, in verse 29, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and see the Son of Man coming. He uses this very specific genre of language, this prophetic, um, dramatic, poetic language. Um, turn back to Isaiah 13, because you have an example of this. You see this kind of language throughout the prophets. We saw it in Joel. Isaiah 13 is a really good example of this, this kind of language that's used by God to describe the cosmic and cataclysmic nature of judgment, even though in our experience of it, you know, we don't see the sun getting darkened, stars falling out of heaven, but you do see uh, the, what this prophetic language is meant to do is to help us to understand the cosmic realities of judgment, that there is something profound and magnificent and important going on when judgment is poured out on the earth. So Isaiah 13 in verse 10, and this is speaking of the destruction of Babylon. He's prophesying the destruction of the Babylonian empire. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. And then down in verse 13. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. So you see there one example of Isaiah speaking of a historical event that was going to happen, the destruction, the judgment of Babylon, using this language, the sun will not give its light, the earth will be shaken, it's going to be knocked off its course. You know, that wasn't the experience of people in history. They didn't see the stars falling out of the sky when Babylon was destroyed. The idea there was to paint this picture of cataclysmic, profound, cosmic judgment. And Jesus is speaking in the same genre here as he is warning the old covenant people of this judgment that's going to come on Jerusalem using similar language that was used about the judgment of Babylon, that this is going to be cataclysmic, profound, cosmic in its proportions, this judgment on Jerusalem. And when he talks about the end of the age, the apostles are asking, you know, what will be the sign of the end of the age? What Jesus is talking about is the end of the epic of the Old Covenant, that the Old Covenant was the 
dominant force. It was the dominant reality. Really, the you know almost the uh, the only reality. It was this glorious covenant order that God had established to shape his people. This was the way that people drew near to God. This was the, you know, this was true religion. The old covenant was God's relationship with man during that period. This was a great, I mean, the only way that you could describe this is as an age, the age of the old covenant. And this was coming to an end and it was going to come to a loud crashing end. It had to. It was such an important period of history. And the fact that it ended with such unfaithfulness and disobedience meant that there would have to be a massive and profound judgment. So the age that is ending is the old covenant age. And he even talks about there that this is the beginning of birth pains. That's uh, sort of... um, brings to mind or signifies the idea that um, from pain and trial and tribulation is going to come new life, something new and something better. And so the old covenant ending with pain and tribulation, but once that finally ends, then this better new covenant comes and flourishes. Um, you know, so death or life coming out of death, as it were. And so what Jesus is prophesying here is that the old covenant would end definitively, not like when the people were exiled from the land, but then they came back and still offered their sacrifices, but it was going to end absolutely once and for all with all of the threatened curses falling on the unrepentant of that generation who fulfilled all disobedience when they crucified Jesus. Um, in Hebrews 8, when he's talking about the, you know, the coming of the new covenant, the writer of Hebrews says, <clears throat> um, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The author of the Hebrews is saying to these people who wanted to maintain the outward forms of Judaism, who wanted to keep the temple and the sacrifices and the ceremonies and all the rest, the author of the Hebrews is saying, no, something new has come. And that means the old thing is becoming obsolete and it's ready to absolutely vanish away entirely. And that's what the old covenant judgment did. It caused the entire order of the old covenant to vanish away completely. And that happened through the destruction of judgment. So through judgment, God made it absolutely impossible for the old covenant to continue, for there to be anyone who continued under the old covenant order. The temple was destroyed for good and was never rebuilt. The Jews were scattered out of the promised land and weren't back in it for almost 2,000 years. Um, And even, you know, every, you know, the the sacrifices, the ceremonies, all of that was definitively over in 70 AD when the Romans conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And um, every attempt at, you know, uh, to, to continue religious Judaism today is, um, it's striving for something that does not exist anymore. There True biblical mosaic Judaism is extinct. It does not exist. 
the religion of the Old Testament does not exist. God definitively judged that system in such a way that it is impossible to practice that anymore when God destroyed it. So yes, you have, obviously you have modern day Jews who you know, seek to practice some form of religious Judaism, but there's, they're not making sacrifices. They don't have a temple. They don't have a holy place. They don't have the ceremonies and all the stipulations laid down in the law of Moses. It's all an approximation. It's all an attempt to get at something that no longer exists. And that's what I'm trying to communicate is that God, when he judges definitively, he does so in such a way where it is not possible to continue in that covenant order that was previously there. Now, all of this does not mean that Jesus' words in Matthew 24 are irrelevant to us or that they don't mean anything to us or that, you know, after the destruction of Jerusalem, they have no significance. Um, and it also doesn't undermine the, you know, kind of the doctrines of um, the, you know, second coming of Christ the bodily resurrection, the final judgment, all of those, you have those attested to all you know, elsewhere in the New Testament. It's not like if you, you know, don't have Matthew 24 speaking directly to that, you don't have those. So I want to be clear on that. But the relevance of Matthew 24 to us today, of Jesus' words, is that he's describing many of the patterns of persecution, false religion, trials and tribulations that the church experiences throughout history. So, you know, God's people, Christ's people, experienced that persecution and tribulation um, leading up to and around the time that the temple was destroyed and Jesus was particularly and specifically warning the people in that age. Even some of the things he says, you know, that when you you know, see the abomination of desolation, get out of Jerusalem, you know, go flee to the mountains, um, you, know, you know, pray that your flight isn't in winter. He's giving specific instructions to the people who were going to be experiencing this tribulation. But... We also experience persecution and tribulation throughout history, and we can learn wisdom um, from the prophetic words of Jesus of how to endure under trials and tribulations. Um, and it also does seem to, because like I said, it's a tricky passage, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of difficult portions of it, and it does seem to also look forward to a greater judgment to come, not just the destruction of Jerusalem. So yes, the prophecy is immediately, concretely fulfilled in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple, the siege of Jerusalem, but that's not ultimate final judgment. It was final judgment on the old covenant order and the old covenant people, but it's not ultimate final judgment. Even the old covenant judgment like everything else about the Old Covenant is a type that points forward to something greater. Everything about the Old Covenant from the Exodus to the temple to the kings to the sacrifices, everything was pointing forward to something greater. The exile from Jerusalem was pointing to something greater. And I believe even the destruction of Jerusalem is pointing to something greater, a final fulfillment of you know what the you know of judgment because the reality is that today there still remain two 
covenant orders to creation. The covenant with Adam, what we call the covenant of life, and the new covenant in Christ. You have two distinct covenant orders operating in creation right now. We're suffering in a way under the curse of Adam's covenant, right? We experience sin, we experience the you know effects of sin, the curse of the fall, and all the rest of it, but wrath and judgment on this covenant order has not yet been fully executed. Wrath under the covenant of life is still being built up and stored up, and it hasn't yet been fully realized. We still there still needs to be judgment on the the order of the covenant of life, the covenant with Adam. And so old covenant judgment, when we look at the destruction of Jerusalem, we look at Jesus' warnings of this destruction, it should remind us of the reality that there still is one final judgment yet to come. There's still one, you know, damned covenant order in Adam, one that is under a curse that is going to receive final ultimate judgment that has yet to be realized. And so when we read Matthew 24 and other passages like it, we should be soberly reminded that final judgment still does await on the covenant of life and on that order. And when God does execute final judgment on the covenant of life, the covenant with Adam, he will make it absolutely impossible for anyone to operate outside of the new covenant. So if you're in Christ, you are in the new covenant. But right now we're in that period of warning, of preaching until the fullness of time comes when Jesus decides the time has come to execute judgment on the covenant of life and those still in Adam. And when he does that, God makes it impossible for them to remain in that state. Um, the covenant of life, just like the old covenant, will vanish entirely. That's what, that's kind of the idea of hell in the outer darkness. It's impossible to dwell in God's new restored creation where righteousness flourishes if you're still operating under the cursed covenant of Adam. You're in the outer darkness. You can no longer, it is not possible to operate. That's what God's doing in creation and in reality. He is making it ultimately so that nobody outside of the covenant of Christ can continue to operate in creation. And so ultimately the new covenant is going to stand alone, be fully realized in the new creation where only righteousness is allowed to dwell. I know that was probably a lot. Do you guys have any questions as of now? So when you're talking about like what you just explained, so like when righteousness, like when the the only be right, is that like Christ's second coming? Yes, yes, that's the yes, that's what I mean. Um, because that's when the the covenant with Adam will finally be done away with. That's when new heavens, new earth. Exactly. Yes. And so, you know, we should, I think, I think that like Jesus prophecies in Matthew 24, they find their, like I said, immediate fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem. But I think also there are things in there that kind of look beyond that to the final judgment, the new creation, second coming and the resurrection Mm -hmm. and all of that. Um, So we should still be mindful of that. 
but also understand primarily he's warning the old covenant people of this judgment that's imminent, that's going to come in their lifetime. But yes, that ultimate final judgment is going to make it impossible for anyone outside of Christ's covenant to dwell on the earth. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? All right. Okay. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for your wisdom and for your great patience and mercy, Lord God, for we know that it's true that, Lord, if you were not abundantly patient, God, none of us would be able to stand before you. Lord, you delay judgment, you delay final execution of wrath because you desire all of your people to come to you, Lord God, and you command that the gospel go forth to all of creation. Father, I pray that you would please give us humble and thankful hearts, God, that you have shown us mercy where we did not deserve it, where you have brought us into a new covenant and a new kingdom under a gracious king who has paid our debts and has elevated us to the level of heirs and sons of the Most High God. Father, I pray that we would live faithfully according to this covenant reality and not according to our old nature and the cursed covenant of Adam, Lord, where we're given over to sin. Father, please let us put that entirely to death as we anticipate you putting all of the curse to death once and for all when you finally come to judge every last enemy, including death itself. God, I do thank you that you have dealt with sin definitively, and I pray that you would be working it out of us. And Lord, just be helping us to be more and more like Christ, becoming more and more throughout our lives what we will be for all eternity, which is the perfect reflection of Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.